Father, we thank you for the opportunity, as always, to stop and come to your word. Lord, forgive us if we have made an idol of busyness. Lord, if we have made an idol of our time and have not stopped to come to you, what a wonderful opportunity this is for us to stop and to consider who we are and who you are and how we desperately need your word. And so, Lord, I pray that today all of those that you, by your sovereign hand, have brought to be here this morning would faithfully listen and that I would faithfully say what is in your text and interpret correctly what is in your text and proclaim, proclaim truth rightly that glorifies you but that also you use, Father, through your power and through your supernatural working. This was your design, as we've been seeing in John, that you would use the words of sinful, frail men if those words come from the truth of Scripture to open eyes, to soften hearts, to call your sheep in. And so, Lord, would you do that today? In Christ's name, amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John 20. John 20. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 30 through 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. So I love to read. I always have loved to read. In our family, um, we grew up reading. Uh, and so I've always got a handful of books that I'm working through. I love fiction. I love history. I love theology. And so... I go through a lot of books. Um, with, the, with the advent of the smartphone was just about the best thing in the world for me because I just carry a library with me everywhere. And at any moment, I can just pull up and be reading my books. So I go through a lot of books. And so it happens sometimes that, that I start reading a book or somebody recommends a book to me or I see one that's advertised and I think, oh, well, that's interesting. And then I start to look at it. And sometimes it just happens that I just, I can't help but think, why on earth did somebody think that we needed this book? Like, why would, why would we take the time to write this book? And, and, and you know, sometimes what can happen is, is that we can read through a book with our own idea for why that book was written and why the arguments were, were made and what we were supposed to do with what we were reading. But here's the thing we have to do this morning. We have to, we have, to have the right answer to the question, who gets to decide the meaning of the text of the book that we're reading? Who gets to be the one who decides the meaning of what we are reading? And of course, I'm going to say that despite what our world tells us these days, the author's intention in writing really does determine what the book means, especially when you are talking about a book that claims to be the truth, a book that claims to explain reality as it is, if you're going to understand a book like that rightly, then the author is the one who determines what it means. So, you know, we, we live in a world where the reader has all the power. The, the reader can take whatever they want from what they read, no matter what no matter whether that's what the author meant or not. I mean, how often have we said that? I've been like, I don't know what they meant, but here's what it means to me. 
here's what I think about it. Here's, here's, here's what I got from it. But the problem is that changes the meaning of what was originally written, right? The Bible was not written to be a book that we could flex and twist to mean what we wanted to mean. It was written by God, and it was written to tell us what reality actually is. It was written to explain how did we get here, who put us here, why did he put us here, what are you and I for, what are we doing right now, where are we going, and what's going to happen. These are all things that we don't need to understand what we think about it, we need to understand what the author who wrote it meant when he said it. He had a point. Generally, you know, again, we can just, we see what we see. We read what we read. We kind of put our experience, we kind of put our expectations on it. And then we twist it to, 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 to fit what we understand. And yes, sometimes authors can write poorly. Sometimes they can muddle up their arguments so badly that you can't be faulted if you don't understand what they're trying to say. But here we're talking about God as the author, and he determines what this book means. And so God, through John, tells us the purpose of the book that we've been reading. So we've been reading through this gospel for months now. We have been watching Jesus. We have been drawing conclusions about him. We've been drawing conclusions about what he's doing, what he's saying. And so it's worth, now that we're coming at the end, it's worth stopping and asking, did, did you get the point of the book? Is it possible that you, in, in reading through John, in studying John, is it possible that maybe you missed the point of the book? I hope we haven't missed the point as we've worked through it. This is why we have asked again and again how you answer the question, who is Jesus? Because this is the one thing that John wants us to know. And so it brings us here to our, our passage today. But you can't disconnect our passage today from last week in Thomas. Remember the story of Thomas who demanded to see Jesus, to put his hands in Jesus' wounds. He wouldn't believe until he did. And so Jesus graciously, patiently gave Thomas what he asked for. But he also ended by saying, have you seen and believed? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Because Jesus won't be doing that anymore. Jesus, Jesus came to Thomas, but he's not going to do that anymore. He's ascending to the Father. Things are changing so what is God going to use to work in people's lives and introduce them to the most important person that they've ever met? And that's where we are today. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there's four points this morning. There are four questions. You can find them there in your bulletin if that's helpful for you in following along. The first thing I just want us to think about for a minute is the question, why write it down? Why write it down? But these are written so that you may believe. You know, this, this ties in with what we've been seeing in the rest of chapter 20. There is a shift 
that's happening in God's activity here on earth. Jesus is ascending. We're in the age of Jesus' messengers, his ambassadors, spreading the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. So you remember we saw right away when Jesus saw Mary at the tomb, he sent Mary to the disciples. Of course, he could have gone himself. I think it's important that he sent Mary to the disciples. When he came to the disciples, he said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. But he won't be here for the new followers to meet in the flesh. Those that that he is sending his ambassadors out to, they are not going to get the moment that Thomas had with Jesus. So how are they going to be able to have confidence in this incredible claim of eternal life? And more specifically, the, the claim that eternal life can only be found in this one person, Jesus of Nazareth. Again, the author gets to determine the meaning of his text, and it is clear from Scripture that the one way to salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven. This is the name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Everything. He is the mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. How will they be able to have confidence in this incredible claim of eternal life? That's the beauty of Scripture. It's why Scripture is the basis of everything that we do. So this morning, let's be thankful for Scripture for at least three reasons. One, It allows the message of Jesus to remain accurate. To remain what God intended the message to be as the author. Because it is written down. It's written down. We don't have to trust in a human's faulty memory. We don't have to trust in a human's explanation or faulty understanding. Because that, that's just incredibly dangerous, right? So when I summarize things from memory, I'm pretty much guaranteed to forget something or reword it in a way that's just not the same or miss it entirely. I mean, you guys saw what I did during the announcements this morning, right? That's what can happen with a human being just trying to remember and explain something. I'm really happy that I get to use that as an illustration. That was my intention the whole time. But when I do that, when you do that, we are pretty much guaranteed to either forget something or we can mishear what's being said. How often is it that you have a conversation and you hear like one thing, maybe, that was said, even if there were five things that were said. You only remember one and you forget the others. So having it written down for each individual to have in front of them to wrestle with the very words of God, the the words that God intended to have recorded, that is priceless. It's why we should always encourage people to read Scripture. It's why the Bible was used for centuries as the book that children learned language from, not just to teach them to read or write, but to introduce them to the words of God Himself. So one, it allows the message of Jesus to remain accurate. Two, it allows God's message to last 
for centuries, for millennia, without being distorted. It's a very refreshing exercise, and I would encourage you to do it, to go do some digging on the reliability of Scripture. The reliability of Scripture is profound. It is amazing. God truly has preserved His Scripture throughout the centuries with amazing accuracy. We can have confidence that we're reading what God intended for us to read because it's lasted for centuries, and we can examine our own Bibles and we can compare them to scriptural texts that are millennia old and see it's the same text. The preservation of God's Word, I mean, it's nothing, it's nothing less than supernatural, quite honestly. That, that if you were to go digging, you would see that, that we have amazing, it's, it's unbelievable. There's no other text that compares in terms of the confidence you can have that you are reading the the words that God intended for you to be reading. Why? Because it was written down. And we see John, the apostle, very self-consciously recognizing what he's doing when he says, we're writing this down. Because you don't have the Thomas experience, but you actually have far more than Thomas had. Don't you? You have the narrator's view of the story of Jesus. And that's the third thing. So one, it allows the message of Jesus to be accurate. Two, it allows it to last for centuries. Three, and this is just beautiful, because God chose to use the method of Scripture written down. And because we can have confidence that it's the same Scripture the early church was reading, we get access to eyewitness testimony of Jesus. We get to hear the very words of those who were there. We're not getting secondhand. And so the fact that God chose to write this down is such a precious gift to us. It is why Scripture has to be the foundation of our faith. It has to be the foundation of who we are and why we do what we do. We can't have anything else because it was God's intention. It was God's intention for us to have these words and God gave us the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to understand these words. So that's the first thing I want us to see overall this morning. Why write it down? So that we can hear exactly what God wanted us to hear. Second this morning, I want to ask, why these signs? Why these signs? I love how Spurgeon describes this. Listen to this quote. It's kind of long. The public life of our most blessed Lord Jesus Christ was brief. Few suppose it to have exceeded three and a half years, but yet what a full life it was. It had in it not only enough to compose the four Gospels, each one of which is sufficient to lead men to saving faith, but so much remained over and above that. The Apostle John makes this remarkable statement, and there were also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Our Lord's life 
was as ample as his own festivals. His life feeds thousands. And with the fragments that remain, many baskets might be filled. A man may complete a great and fruitful life in two or three years, while another may have existed as long as an antediluvian, and yet his life may be poor and powerless. Not only did the Lord Jesus speak and do great things as to number, but there was a world of power in each word and work. He did not display a multitude of feeblenesses, but each individual outcome of his life was grand enough to have been a marvel if considered only by itself. As was the doer in whom dwelt all the fullness of God, the Godhead bodily, so were the deeds. They also were full of grace and the truth of God. So why these signs? I think to show us three things mainly, and John tells us them right here in his passage. Why these, three, why these signs? For three reasons. To show us that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that you can have life in his name. These signs are intended so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Son of God, and you can have life in His name. We can look back now over everything that we've read, and we can see how these three things were always in focus, weren't they? Right from the very beginning, John emphasizes this. The very first words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so then John sets out to show us how Jesus was this Word, the Son who has been with the Father for all time, who has life in us, in him, and who could give life to us. So this is actually one of the reasons why it's so tempting when you read John for the first time, or you read John for the first time in a long time, and you're studying through it, that you just want to go back and read through it again. I really, there's just, there is a part of me that really does just want to flip back to John 1.1 and preach through the whole book again. Now that we've come to the end, there's such a depth all throughout, we see that Jesus is the Son of God. We see the miracles that He performs, the power of God at work. And these signs are recorded by John to show that Jesus actually was the Word made flesh dwelling among us. So John Owen calls the signs miraculous deeds performed to signify God's presence in the powerful actions. These were meant to show you and to show me. And again, we have eyewitness testimony to it. Jesus was God himself, the Son of God, in the story of Jesus, you get your answer for how much God loves his people how willing He is to save His people. Because in Jesus, you see God Himself taking on the form of man, humbling Himself. He came to His own, but of course, we see the spiritual death, the blindness of God's people. John tells us He came to His own and His own 
did not receive him. And yet we see who he was. And then we see him teaching, and he's proclaiming that God is his father. Even under threat of death, he's not going to back down from the claim that he is the son of God. And again, the Jews knew exactly what he meant when he said that God is my father. They knew that in, he was claiming to be equal with God. The son, the one unique son of the father, which of course to the Jew would mean that he was the rightful heir of his father. All that was the father's was his as well. He is the one son of God. So John shows us that. And by the time we get to John 20, if you've been reading carefully, if what John says is true, how could you deny it? Along with being the Son, though, He is also the Christ, the Anointed One of God, the Man, the promised Man who would come, the King in the line of David. You know, we've seen this in the last couple months in the build-up to the cross, and the moment that Pilate puts the sign on the cross that reads, the King of the Jews. And of course, in God's perfect plan, the only one worthy of being the king of God's people has always been who? God himself. Israel should never have sought a human king in the first place. And now God the Father establishes God the Son as the perfect king, the Christ, the anointed one. John shows us he was that king. But John also showed us something else about the king. Do you remember what it was? God's design for his king is very different than the world's idea of God being king. He didn't come simply to rule over Israel and free them from Rome but God's plan was so much more eternal. It was so much greater. The, these two things, him being the son of God and him being the Christ, the anointed one of God, they all point to God's eternally greater plan for the king. He didn't come just to conquer earthly enemies. He came to conquer sin and death. And of course, the climactic moment of Jesus' power, at least the one before the resurrection, was bringing Lazarus back to life. The creative power of the eternal word of God at work here on earth, telling something that was dead, telling a person that was dead, simply speaking to this dead person and giving him life. No one else but God could do that. And you see in, the, in Christ that creative power. This was something his supporters and his enemies both testified to. This sign truly prepares us for the resurrection where he overthrows death himself. And by this point, 
we can see what John said at the beginning. We don't just have to take John's word for it with what he said at the beginning. John has walked us carefully through this story. John has given us markers time and time again to say, hey, do you see who Jesus is? So that by the point that we get to today in John 20, you should, if you've been following along, you should know in him was life. He showed that. Where else could we go? In Him is life. Where else could we go? Lord, You have the words of eternal life. Life is in Him. And this is what John has shown to us by these signs. And so we see that. We see He was the Son of God. We see He was Christ. We see that in Him is life. And so the question then to ask, our third question today, how do we respond to these signs? D.A. Carson says something really important here in his commentary, in his pretty academic commentary, to be honest. He says, John's purpose is not academic. John's purpose is not academic. He is not writing just so that you and I can simply know about Jesus because it's not enough to just know about Jesus. It's not enough to just be able to answer questions about Jesus. It is not enough to just gather on a weekly basis and learn about Jesus. It is not enough to just talk about Jesus. It is not enough to wear shirts about Jesus. It is not enough to hope that our culture follows the principles that Jesus lays down. It's just not enough. Because that's not the point. Of course, it starts there. It starts there, doesn't it? It starts with knowledge. You have to know about him. You have to know about him rightly, what God has actually said. John is going to call people who get the facts of Jesus wrong. He's going to call them antichrist. He's going to call them false teachers in his later epistle. But even though you have to start with knowledge, knowledge is not the end. Knowledge is not the goal. Knowledge is not the purpose for us being here. You have to believe. You know, think about it this way. The Bible was not given to us from God to cause doubt in our minds. We have doubts in our minds because of our brokenness and our frailty. But the Bible was not given to you to cause you to doubt God. The Bible was given to you so you could have confidence, so that you could believe. John says, I wrote these things down so that you would believe. That's the whole point of me writing these down. James Boyce uses the illustration of ABC to explain this, and I do think it's a helpful illustration. A, you must accept the basic teachings about Jesus of Nazareth as fact. So A, you accept the basic teaching, and that should be easy because they are facts. I mean, the reason that many doubt them is, is, is not because they're uncertain. I mean, they, they are as well attested as any facts in history. But we start with accepting. We start by beginning to study the gospel. Read the scriptures. Dig deeper. You will find that God is sufficient when you dig deeper. 
into Scripture. But we accept the knowledge, the truth. Are they con- is, it, is it consistent with the testimony? Is it consistent with the world? You'll find that it is. So we accept the truth. And then B, we believe on him personally. This is more than merely believing facts. Boyce wants to point out, and he's, he's exactly right. This is more than believing facts. It's not just enough for you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ. You have to believe in him personally. You have to, with Thomas, not just say, oh my goodness, now I know who you are. What does Thomas say? He says, my Lord and my God. Believe on him personally. That he has come to forgive you and save you and make you a part of his people. That he is your savior. He is your king. And then see, commit yourself to him. I think this is a good summary of what, Paul, of what John is getting at here. Accept the truth of him. Believe in him personally. Commit yourself to him. To live for him. Again, he's not your butler. He's not, he's not your, your advisor. He's not your cheerleader. He is your king. He is your God. He is your Lord. Commit yourself to him. Belief is something that just changes our whole life. And John shows us throughout the whole gospel why this is worthwhile. Why this is what you must do. Your response to Jesus must be belief. We don't have him here in front of us, but we have eyewitness testimony to who he is, to what he's done, to what he has said. We have eyewitness testimony to what he did after he was ascended. And so we connect what we know with belief. John Calvin talks about how our faith is yoked to our teaching. And he calls, he calls our uh, teaching, our doctrine, faith's inseparable companion. What we know, the truth we teach, it is our, the inseparable companion to our faith. They go together. Faith is not just a belief that God exists. The word was written. The truth that we have was written so you would believe. And so if, let, let, let's ask this question now. So you see that. You see that, that it was meant for us to believe. So now here's the next thing to go, for, go there from. If, if the word was written so that we would believe, and that's a, that's a pretty big statement there from John, right? That um, he... This is the whole purpose of it being written. John, John wasn't, you know, writing this to get his name out there. He wasn't writing this to, you know, get a little extra passive income on the side. Uh, he wasn't, he wasn't, he was writing it so that you would believe. God had led him to do that. There is no greater purpose for John's gospel to exist than for belief from those who read it. 
So the question would be, if the word was written so that we would believe, what should our own words be doing when we send our words out into the world? What's the goal and the motivation for your speech? What's the goal and the motivation for what you say to those who are around you? If we're the messengers and we're the ambassadors of Christ, if we're living in the time when Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and we are the ones who have been sent out into the world, what should we be doing with our words? What should our goal be when we speak to each other and when we speak to our our unbelieving neighbors and friends and co-workers? Do you think about that? We ought to. I'm sure we don't think about it enough. We ought to work for this one goal above every other goal that people would believe in Jesus. I mean, if this is the great goal of the gospel, then it is more than great enough for us to set as our goal too. We have all that we need from God himself to do that. So we're going to end with this final question here. What kind of life do you want? What kind of life do you want? Because don't lose sight of the prize here. This was written so that we would believe that he is the Christ, he is the son of God, but also that we would have life in his name. Later on, John will make this as clear as possible. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, comes down to this. John says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's that simple. So the goal of scripture and the goal for you and the goal for me is this belief in Jesus because that's where life is. If you have the son, you have life. If you don't have the son, you don't have life. In him is true life. Our faith in him brings us life. So you know, there's two ways here that we can think about this. Our belief, our faith in him brings us life. The first is objectively. Objectively, faith in Jesus actually brings life to us. That's what it does. A life that's so far beyond us. A life that is found completely in Jesus. Again, you think about Lazarus here because Lazarus is a great example. He's dead. But when Jesus spoke to him and told him to be alive, well, Jesus has the creative power of life. And our hope for true life is in Jesus alone. This is something that you and I can't make happen. You can't give yourself this life. You can't summon it up. We are not strong enough. We are not smart enough. We are not pure enough. And yet our world is full of people who won't listen to God's word and spend everything trying to just simply prolong this life. Or they spend everything trying to wring every little bit of fulfillment from this life because they know that death is coming. And they're trying to take care of that and address that themselves. But it doesn't ever work. 
There's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. In Him is life. So we trust in Him alone. We put our trust in Him. We believe in Him. And He does not let down those who trust in Him. He has made promises, and the Scriptures show us that He keeps them. So objectively, you get life. You were dead, and now you have life. You were destined for condemnation. You were destined for judgment for your sins, and the judgment for your sins is eternal damnation. But Christian, you've trusted in Jesus. You've seen that He is the Christ, the Son of God. You saw what he did on the cross and you've confessed your sins and you trust that he is sufficient and able and you have life. That's what you have. And nothing, nothing. Famine can't do it. Sword can't do it. Enemies can't do it. Death can't separate you from the love of Christ now because that's what that life is. So objectively, you have it. Secondly, though, I do want you to think about there's a subjective sense to, to connecting faith in Jesus and life. And again, I think Spurgeon said something great in, in his sermon here. He said, faith in Jesus begets life, and this life will flourish or decay very much in proportion to our faith. Believe firmly, and your life will be vigorous. Believe tremblingly, and your life will be faint. Yet all depends upon the name of Christ. So we're meant to live a life of trust in Him. And the point that Spurgeon is making is that when you fight against that Christian, when you don't trust in Him, when you continually choose to trust in yourself instead of God, your life will be weak. You will not have strength. You won't have peace. You'll be tossed to and fro by every circumstance because your peace is connected to your circumstances. But Christian, when you throw yourself on Christ, when you trust in Him, you'll have strength. Now that strength doesn't look like the world's strength. I'm not saying here it's physical strength. But it is a strength that goes so far beyond the circumstances of this life. It is a peace that passes all understanding. We were made to trust and believe in Jesus. And he's made it possible for you and I to do that. So what kind of life do you want? Because John has made it clear. The life that's being offered here, the whole reason the Bible was written was so that you would know who God is, what he has done, and how to have life in his name And that's only through Jesus Christ. I'm going to end with this final thing. So Spurgeon used to have his sermons edited and then they were printed and they were sent out uh, to people. For, For the sermon that he did on this passage, he added a letter at the end of the sermon. Apparently he was sick at the time that he wrote it and so he just... He wanted to send sort of an update letter uh, to to those who got his sermons to let them know how he was doing. And he ended that letter with this statement. Especially let all members of the church be up and doing, for time is short, men are dying, wickedness abounds, and there is need that the gospel be preached with power. 
I think that's a great encouragement for us. The word was written so that you might believe. And Christians, we're here. We haven't been taken up into heaven. We're here so that through us as ambassadors, men and women who are dying can meet Christ and find that life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Where else could we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. How else could we know where our hope is? How else could we know what's going on and what we are doing here? Lord, humble us to believe. Father, when we are too proud, too proud, and too stubborn, too self-centered, would you break into our hearts? Lord, when we are too tempted to rely upon our own strength, would you weaken us and remind us that we are here for your glory? We are here to glorify and enjoy you. We are here as your ambassadors. Help us, Father. We desperately need the power of the Spirit. We desperately need your word guiding and directing our lives. Lord, I pray that as we come to your word, our response is joyful belief, knowing that when you give us life, you hold us and you will bring us through. In Christ's name, amen.